0: Church is this wonderful, boring, sometimes horrible, difficult, great thing that I owe everything to. And the truth is, if you're a Christian person, that's also true of you. No matter your feelings or your experiences in church, what you've been through, the difficult things you've seen, the bad stuff you've seen, the great things you've seen, in some way, you owe everything, your salvation and your eternal life, to this organization that is called church this morning is we remember the giving of the church a couple thousand years ago. We began also a series on the church and over the next four weeks. What we're going to do is we're going to see what church is by examining what the Bible describes church as and so we're going to look at four metaphors in the Bible for the church. We're going to primarily look at these metaphors in the book of Ephesians, because they're all in that book, but we will see in these metaphors really what church is. But before we begin that, before we look at that in the next four Sundays, it's important for us to have some type of understanding of what church does, because here's the deal. It doesn't matter if you understand what church is if you don't understand the goal of church and the purpose of church. Now, I'll be just quite clear and quite honest. We cannot in any way answer that today. We cannot in any type of uh, grandiose way answer what the point and what the goal is and what is God's vision. For a church and, and for the church to accomplish, because that would be a really long conversation and you'd be here for a long time. So, uh, so we're not going to cover all that today. Instead, in the book of Ephesians, I want to focus on just a single aspect of church that God has given us and said, "Look, this is one of the points, one of the goals, one of the concepts that I had in mind when I created this thing that you know as the church." And what I think we'll find is that even though this answer is specific, it in some ways encompasses kind of all of the goals of what a church should be about, what the church was created to do. And so if you'll open up your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 today, that'd be great. But before we get there, let me just give you my quick definition of church. If you've been around church for a long time, uh, this church, and you've been around me, you've had conversations with me, you read my blog, you've listened to my sermons, then you probably already know this, but I'll, it, it bears repeating. Uh, this is how I define church. I'll give it to you in the briefest way I can. Church is a group of people who gather together in the presence of God and have the promise of gathering together again in the presence of God. And so we believe that when we come here and we gather together, that in some type of unique and powerful way, God is with us, In our midst. And what makes us a church when we leave is the fact that next week we'll be here doing this same thing in the presence of God again. And so that drives us, I hope, to have better relationships with each other, to encourage each other, to push each other forward in our relationships with Christ, to be there for each other when we have needs and hurts and struggles, because we know that next week we'll be here doing the same thing in the presence of God. And so that is what church is in some way. But that does not negate the need to answer one very important question. And this is the question. Why did God create church? I mean, was it so that you had to miss the Cowboys games on Sunday morning? Was that part of his reasoning? Was it so that you would get up early on your day off? No. Why did God create this thing called church? And what I found... Is that for many, even people like me who have been in a church a long time, this question isn't so easy to answer. I mean, we can talk about what we get out of church, right? We can point to, well, you know, we get to sing to God when we go there. And so I could hear a sermon, and so I can build relationships. And we kind of point to these things that are good for us. But why did God feel the need to create this organization? Here's what's interesting about this, this question for us. Is that if we do not know the answer to that, then we cannot understand what we are supposed to do or why we are supposed to do it and how we are supposed to do it. You see, God had all of these same kinds of things for thousands of years before he created church. Like, for example, people taught the word of God long before there was the church. And, and here's the other thing. People were in relationship with each other in a godly way long before the church. They were called the Israelites, the Jewish people. And people came into the presence of God long before the organization, the creation of church. They went to the temple for that purpose. And why did God, in his infinite wisdom, not say, well, that's fine, they can just come meet me in the temple. There's going to be the invention of the airplane someday, and so they'll be able to fly there, and it'll be easier to get into my presence. Why wasn't that his plan? And that is the question that I think we see answered in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, verse 1 says this For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, this reason, that apparently is talking about something. If you flipped back a page in your Bible and you looked at the end of chapter 2, this is what you would read. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God's Spirit lives. Paul is saying that the reason for what he is doing what he's about to say, who he is and what he does for a vocation and a living and a lifestyle is based on the fact that God has brought Gentile people into the family, the household of God. Now, if you don't know anything about Paul, here's what Paul did for his whole life until he was killed for doing this, is he traveled around from one city to another he would stop in at the Jewish synagogue, basically like their church. He would talk to the Jewish people. He would be rejected by the Jewish people when he preached a sermon to them. And then he went on to the business that really had been ordained by him, by God, for him. And that was to preach to the Gentiles the good news of Jesus. And so Paul's saying here, this is the reason for my life and for what I'm about to say and what I do. And that is that God has brought Gentile people Now, it's fascinating here because Paul references this former writing, right? And there's no Ephesians 1. This is not Ephesians 2. And so you say, well, what is he talking about? I, that's my question when I read this. What book? I'd really like to have that book. But Paul is probably using just a literary device. And, and what he's referring to is, is the portions of Ephesians that have already been written. And so he is talking about what has been said, and that would never happen in our society today, right? You would be referencing another book. But in his time, it wasn't that uncommon to to reference what you've already said because you know that when the people are reading it, you've already written in the past, right? And so Paul is basically saying, you have two chapters now, and so you understand what I am all about, and so now I'm going to add to that. And he says, I have been given the job by God, through his grace, to present to you the mystery. Now, two things are really fascinating about that. First, this is key because we have our serve course this afternoon. So, for those of you coming, this is an important thing to remember. Paul looks at the job that God has given him, and Paul does not say, this is the work that God is making me do, and I cannot believe that he's given me a job to do in church. I have enough going on in my life and there's things that I need to do. And doesn't he understand that life is busy enough as it is? And so how dare he make me go serve him in this way and go to these different cities and be a missionary because I have things and I want to hang out with my family and I want to have a good life. And now I can't believe that God could possibly do this to me. And so here's what you need to know because he's making me say it, but I don't really want to be here. That's not what Paul says. Paul says he's been given this gift of God. By the grace of God. And so Paul looks at the Christian life very different than a lot of Christians look at the Christian life today. Instead of saying, I can't believe God's given me this thing that I have to do. He says, it is by the grace of God that I have been gifted with this role of presenting the good news, the gospel of Jesus to people who are not Jewish, the Gentile people. That's a pretty neat deal, isn't it? And isn't that just a very different perspective? I mean, I'll be honest. Sometimes I have the wrong attitude about getting up here on Sunday mornings. Like I have another one to do this week. It's like, well, I need to do it, and this is what I think God is calling me to do. And I have this negative attitude. But Paul is saying that if God has given us a role, then it is by His grace, and it is a gift unto us. That's really important. Now, this mystery idea is really fascinating. I mean, what mystery? is Paul talking about here? And for now it just, just suffices to say this. Uh Paul is not talking about like a murder mystery where you don't know the answer. He's talking about instead something that has been revealed that in the past had not been revealed. And first Peter one ten through twelve says this Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels longed to look into these things. Paul is saying this. For thousands of years, there was something that God knew that others did not know. And the prophets, they wanted to know. The guys that wrote the Old Testament, they really wanted to know what they were writing about, but they couldn't see it. They want to know who they were writing about and when they were writing about it, and what they were writing about it. And they really wanted to understand. And, and it says even in First Peter that they searched diligently to try to understand what they were saying, but then it was revealed to them that what they were saying was not for their sake, but for you. People who would live later after the person of Jesus. Verse 6 of our passage, Paul says what the mystery is. This mystery is that... Through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. This is interesting. Because this is not something that was a secret so much. Instead, it was something that nobody understood how it could accomplish. Paul says three things at the end there. They are one body and shares together in the promise of Christ and heirs together with the Jewish people. But all of that is simply to say that the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people on the planet of earth, have been brought in through Jesus and made one. Now the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, can be in a relationship relationship with God. And here's what the mystery was. The Old Testament predicted this, that someday all people, not just Jews, would be blessed through the God of the Jewish people. And it was predicted that they would be in the kingdom and things like that. But no Jewish person understood how that could possibly take place. You see, for thousands of years, even though these predictions had been in the Word of God, what would happen is that if a non-Jewish person wanted to worship the God of the universe, what they did is they basically became Jewish. Not by birth, but in law and in society and in what they did and the way they dressed and everything else. And so what Paul is saying to us is not that something new has been talked about in Jesus, but instead, the way in which that happened has been revealed to all people. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Listen to verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul is saying, that the mystery that he presents to people is that non-Jewish people are now able to come into relationship with God and with Jewish people in a way that makes them absolutely one. Nothing separating them, nothing in between them. In fact, that 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 passage is a quote from Exodus 19. and In Exodus 19, we see God creating the nation of Israel. And before he creates that nation, he says to them almost the exact same words as First Peter. He says, I will make you my holy people. I will make you a royal nation. I will make you my treasured possession. And now Peter tells us, Paul is showing us, this has now been made known, the way that this will take place. And it happens through the gospel of Jesus. Now let me explain the gospel to you for those of you that don't understand it. The gospel is Simply this. God created people. People chose to turn their backs on God through sin. They said, God, we understand that you want us to do this, but this is what we are going to do. God looked down he saw their disobedience and from that single moment of disobedience through Adam and Eve, the guys in the beginning of the Bible, we see that sin came into all the world and every single person from Adam and Eve on to us has committed sin. We've done things where we have blatantly disobeyed and disregarded what God would have us do. But yet, God wants to have a relationship with us. That's what the Bible tells us. But God cannot have a relationship with sinful people for eternity. It is not possible for us, in the greatest way, in a heavenly way, to be in the presence of God when we are sinners. And so we had to be punished for our sin, so that the sin could be removed. But God knew the only good punishment, the only right punishment, the only just punishment, was to send us to hell. But He wanted to have a relationship with us. And so, God came down in the person of Jesus to die on a cross, so that He could pay the punishment of our sin. When Jesus, a man who lived 2,000 years ago, hung on a cross, he did that to suffer hell for you and I. Three days later, on a day we call Easter, Jesus rose from the grave, thus conquering death once and for all. And the Bible tells us that all of us who will believe in that sacrifice and that resurrection and will give our lives to Jesus because of it, recognizing what an amazing sacrifice it was and how much it can benefit us and how worthy God is of our worship and our following will inherit eternal life. We will live in eternity with God forever because our sins have been cleansed and washed away. That is what the gospel is. And here, what Paul is saying to us is that through this, all people can now be the people of God. We can all have purpose and meaning and we can all have worth in the eyes of God because of Jesus and what he did for us. Now for us living today, who have heard the story of Christianity who have grown up in a Gentile world, right? I mean, we don't know many Jewish people, if we know any at all in our lives. We think, well, who cares? I mean, it's it's always been that way, hasn't it? I mean, I've always been able to come into a relationship with God. It's simple, it's easy, we just do that. Isn't that kind of, I mean, if you really were honest with yourself, somewhere inside of you, you're thinking like, whoop-dee-doo. I mean, cool mystery that I can be the people of God. We've had that forever in our own minds. But if you were to go back before Jesus' death and resurrection, even after the very beginning of the church, what you find is that almost everybody who worshipped the true God of the universe was a Jewish person. In fact, when the early church starts, and the story that we saw up here today, what happens is the early church is filled up with Jewish people. It mentioned that they were speaking different languages. It's because it was Jewish people who had lived before that time in other places and who were retiring in Jerusalem, the holy city. And so, in the very earliest moments of the church, it was all Jewish people. And then something happens in Acts 10. And I think this is really the mystery and the heart of the mystery in which Paul talks about. In Acts 10... Peter, one of Jesus' best friends and disciples, is trying to take a nap. And he has this crazy dream. And in this dream, what happens is that all of these animals are floating around, and he hears a voice saying, take and eat. But there's a problem for Peter, even in the midst of his dream. These animals, according to the Old Testament law, are not legal for him to eat. And so Peter says, hey, (laughs) From the time I was a kid, I have obeyed the law of the Old Testament, and so there's no way that I'm going to kill and eat these animals. And three times this same thing takes place in his dream. There's animals, a voice says, take, kill, and eat. Now at the same time, In the same moment, there's a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile man, a non-Jewish man. He lives in a city near where Peter is having this dream. And Cornelius has a vision. And the vision says, you need to go and you need to get a guy named Peter so he can come back here and explain something to you. Peter wakes up from his dream. And immediately, Cornelius' servants knock on the door. I think Peter in those moments at first finally gets, he finally understands that God is not actually telling him to kill and eat animals that were unclean. But instead is saying to Peter quite clearly, hey, these Gentiles that you think are so unclean and so dirty and could never be a part of God, it's now okay to be with them and associate with them. And here's what happens. Acts 10:23 through 48. This is a big story, but it's so important. You're only here right now because of this. The next day, Peter started out with them. And some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are all aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for you, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praised God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to to stay with them for a few days. You see, in this moment, non-Jewish people become The people of God. And God comes into the lives for the very first time in history. To the lives of non-Jewish people. He meets them where they are. And you say, okay, that's still great. I'm glad that's happened. But listen to what happens at the beginning of chapter 11. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. And said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. You see, people in the early church said, how dare you go into those unclean people's house? How could you go there to preach to them and be in their presence in that way? And then Peter, for several verses, explains what God has done for the Gentile people. It's a crazy thing. Paul is saying that the mystery is this, that you and I, who are not Jewish people, now have access to the God of the universe through what Jesus did on the cross. If you were to live 2,100 years ago, then you would not have been able to be in the presence of God in the way that you are today. Verse 7 continues, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace, given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Two things to notice. First of all, Paul calls himself the least of all saints. If you don't know the story of Paul. It's, it's just a crazy story. Paul was a guy who was very faithful to the Jewish religion. He was educated in the Jewish religion. He was passionate about the Jewish religion. And one day he was traveling to go persecute this new group of people called Christians. And God met him on the side of a road and said, hey, Paul, stop persecuting me. And Paul completely changed his life. But when you look at the life of Paul and you look back on it, it seems as though Paul could never forget the fact that he was there watching, probably cheering, probably excited as Christian people died. And he had made it his goal to make more Christians die. And so throughout his ministry, you see this this thinking that just drives the way he views God's grace. And that is this, that he's such a low person that did so many bad things to the group that God loved could still be used by God through God's love, grace, and mercy. The other thing that's really important that he points out is the boundless riches of Christ. Boundless riches refers to riches that are immeasurable. Refers to riches that we have as Christians as described in Ephesians chapter 1 that we cannot even fathom. So many people think, I don't want to give up too much to become a christian to really follow jesus to really give my life to him if i can just kind of pretend i'm a christian it'll be so much easier but paul says that when we give our lives to christ and when we really sell out to him when we become true christians followers of jesus then we have boundless riches i don't know each of you and your financial situations but i bet it's measurable I bet that you can tell me how much money you have in a bank account. I bet you can tell me how much debt you have. I bet you can tell me how, much, uh, how many assets you have and the things that you own and stuff like that. It's all measurable. But Paul says Christianity, when we come to it, and when we come to a relationship with Jesus, it, it, it allows for us to have riches that cannot be understood while we are alive on this earth. And so what I want you to hear is what Paul has in mind throughout his whole ministry, and that is this. Nothing that you could give up for the sake of Jesus could ever, ever be as costly as what you will get from coming to Jesus. A relationship with Christ brings so much more than anything this world can offer. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church about to get to the point. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word translated manifold means many colored. and Wisdom has been referred to this way. The ability to judge correctly and to follow the best course of action based on knowledge and understanding. Paul says here that God's Multicolored, varied wisdom, ability to do the best thing in every situation. God's varied way of doing the best thing in every situation is now made known through the church. Two, this is the really interesting part, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This is definitely a reference to angels. There's a little bit of discussion on whether or not it's demons, dark angels, bad angels, or if it's Angels, angels, you know, nice wings, pretty, love God, love you, those types of angels. There's a little bit of discussion, but when you flip to Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, I think that discussion is settled. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers and the, the, of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Here's what Paul's saying. God has brought Gentiles into relationship with Him so that, in part, through this thing that we call the church that was created 2,000 years ago, we might make known in this organization how great and smart and good God is in every situation to the demons. I just take the the traditional story of of ...demons and how they came into existence. This is the traditional story. It only has slight biblical support, but let's just take the traditional story. traditional story says this. God's up there. Satan is his biggest, best angel. He's a great guy. And then one day, Satan says, God, you're too powerful. I want to become like you. I want to be better than you. I could do a better job of running this whole system than you can. And so, therefore, he started this war against God. And a bunch of angels, including Satan, went down into hell... And And they now torment the world. That's kind of the traditional story that Christianity has clung to for a long time. Just take that picture and think about this. If that is the case, then it is the church's job to say, Hey Satan, you're wrong because our God always does it better. You see, we think that this organization of church exists for us and solely for us. And my fear is we'll go through these metaphors and you'll say, what can I get out of it? But that's not what it's about on its most core level. The church exists. God created the church. He brought you who are not Jews into relationship with Him so that you could declare His majesty, His glory, His wisdom, His perfection in every single situation. The church exists to say, hey devil, our God is better than you. Our God always does it right. Our God never makes mistakes. Our God is always perfect, always good, always wonderful, always loving, always excellent. This organization doesn't exist so that you can be filled up on Sunday mornings. This organization exists for something much bigger, much grander, something that we cannot even see. And that is to declare to the spiritual forces that do exist in the world, I hate to tell you, that God is good. And this all happened, it all began, because Jesus came to this earth to accomplish God's eternal purpose. And the eternal purpose of God has always been to show His greatness and His goodness. So here's kind of the question for you and I. I mean, if God has done this loving, amazing, merciful, kind thing, in which he came to earth in the form of Jesus, his son, and he died a horrible, terrible, awful death, and then rose again so that you and I, who are not Jewish people, could get into relationship with him and... The purpose of that, at least one of the key purposes, is to declare how great God is. The question is, are you really responding in the right way to that love, grace, kindness, goodness, and mercy? And is your life, and the way that you approach church, genuinely declaring to Satan and his minions that our God is good in every single situation? You see, I think we make church all about us and not about a declaration of God's greatness. And what happens is we examine it and we think about it and we say, well, what works for me? But what we need to say is God, you did this great thing to me. I couldn't be in your presence. I couldn't have relationship with you. I was totally hopeless and lost. I was destined for hell before you created this thing called church. Nothing could be good eternally for me until you came and you died and you rose again and you gave us this thing that we celebrate today. And so therefore, instead of focusing on me, I'm going to focus on saying, Hey Satan, our God is awesome. And what I want you to hear today, what is so important for us as a a congregation and for the church as an organization and for you as an individual is to recognize that if you are a Christian person, your job is to live a life, not that kind of avoids some sin, not that shows up to Sunday morning church service, not that does pretty good but to live a life that declares always and forever the goodness of God in every situation. This nominal Christianity thing doesn't fit with what the Bible describes for us as the purpose and the intent and one of the main goals of church. It just doesn't. If you're half-heartedly attending church, if you're half-heartedly living a Christian life, then you're failing in the very purpose that God has given you by allowing you as a non-Jewish person to be one of His own. You're not a Christian, you're missing out. I mean, Paul, throughout this passage, this is like this grace and this gift that God has given me to actually do something for him so that I can serve his purpose, so that I can declare to the spiritually dark forces that God is good. God has allowed me to do that, even though I'm not very good. In fact, I'm horrible. I'm the worst of all sinners. But what an amazing gift, and I'm gonna run wholeheartedly into it. You see, if you're not a Christian, you haven't taken hold of a gift that's been offered to you, and that gift is to have an eternal purpose. I mean, sure, you can live a good life, you can do great things that make our world a slightly better place, but you cannot have, apart from coming into the church by giving your life to Jesus through his death and resurrection, you cannot have an eternal purpose that accomplishes something outside of what we can see in this world. Your life will always be about the physical and about things that cannot last forever. But if you will come into a relationship with God through Jesus and into this organization called the church, then you can declare to Satan, who causes all the bad stuff in the world, our God is good. And for me, in my competitive nature, I'm not going to rant about toughness again, but for me, in my competitive nature, I just look at Satan and the stuff he does in this world and the pain that exists that in some way he is behind whether actually in those moments or because he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. And you know what I want to say? I want to say, screw you. Our God is better than you. Our God is greater than you, and our God always makes the right decision. so you can shut up, because I don't care what you have to say, and I don't care what you're doing, because in the end, God's going to beat you. I guarantee it, because He guaranteed it. And it doesn't matter what you do now, it doesn't matter how bad you hurt us, or our world, or the tragedies that you create through evil men, or through disasters that exist in our world, our God will win, because every single time, He has made the best decision. And I am a witness to that, And I am that because God brought me into His kingdom through His death and resurrection and created this thing that we call church where we can be one with each other, even each other who are not the same and don't have the same heritage. We are one through that gift and so look at us and remember that you will lose. You will lose because our God always makes the best decision. That's what life is about. That's what the church is about. It's not about us growing. It's not about us feeling good when we leave here. It's not about us doing things like other churches. It's not really even about, apart from this, us accomplishing great things. At its ultimate core, we should want to grow. And we should want to be fed through the church. And we should want to accomplish great things because we want to declare to the dark forces that our God is good. Our God is good. You pray with me. Lord, We just too often make it about us. You sacrificed everything for this. For this thing that we have in church. God, I just would pray that we would be a church that would make you known, not just on the planet, God, but God, in in the heavenly realms. There's just so much evil around us, Father. Oh, man. There's so many bad things that take place. We have so many hurts that go on in our lives. God, and through the church and what you've done, we can declare that despite all of that, you're great. But yet, Lord, we don't. And I confess that to you. I just pray, Lord, that that would change in, in this church and I pray that God in everything we do Lord it would always be so that you could be declared great in the sight of your enemies, Lord. God I, I know that a lot of I mean a lot of the things we do will continue and, and a lot of the things we want to do will be the same. But I pray our intent would not be just to satisfy ourselves or accomplish a goal, but to really bring you worship and fame because you always do right. And you are always good. Father, I pray for anybody here that, that doesn't know you and, and cannot have an eternal purpose. Understand, and, and hopefully I presented it clearly enough, God, they would understand your gospel And they would make a decision to give their lives to you. And I I pray, God, that they would not go another day living for all this normal stuff, Lord. I know that we as Christians have not been the greatest example of having an eternal spiritual purpose always, Lord. But I pray that they could look past that. And they would give their lives to you because of your greatness, not because of our goodness. Jesus, thank you that you would come to this earth and die for us. And I say, I thank you so much that you've created church. And you know, God, how much church has meant to me even this week. I couldn't, couldn't, I could not get through this life in the way that I have been able to get through it. Apart from this organization that you blessed us with. I thank you for the relationships. I thank you for your presence. I thank you, God for its purpose, how it's given me a job that matters. Lord, I pray that Creekside Bible Church would always declare your greatness because you are great. In your name, amen.